And so, Lord, you are beautiful. Now we pray that you would help us to feel what you feel, uh, to do what you do, and to speak what you say. In other words, Lord God, help us to preach the gospel in Jesus' name through the power of your spirit. Amen. Hey, it's really important uh, if you're a parent, you notice there's a parent warning about this sermon, okay, in your S News. You might want to read that now because uh, it's a rather adult sermon. So just telling you, um, you may have conversations on the way home that you don't want to have otherwise. Uh, we've been preaching through the book of Ephesians. And, um, you know, last week we spoke about uh, the verse where, Jesus, where Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, and talked about how uh, people drink wine uh, to lose uh, the thing that keeps them numb, uh, like a covering around their heart or their ears, and to commune with another person. And so last week we read this, Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That sentence ends in verse 21 with this phrase, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands. Amen. As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ouch, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I know that those verses raise one or two questions. Like, what do you mean my husband is, is the head? Who does the dishes? Who takes out the trash? Who, who, who gets his own damn beer? Who, who, who does that? And, and, and the Bible, I mean, is that just some kind of hopelessly antiquated relic of a sexist and patriarchal age? And what is marriage? And what about gay marriage? And what about divorce? And can I get a divorce? And is cleaving only for marriage? And what about sex outside of marriage? Did Paul hate sex? Does God hate sex? Does God hate my sex? What's the line between evil sex and, and good sex, good sex and evil sex? You know, when I was a youth pastor, um, 10 years, parents used to come to me all the time and say, Peter, I certainly hope that you talk to the children about sexuality and, and dating. Uh, and you answer their questions. You you know, like how far is too far? Uh, is open mouth kissing a godly activity? And what's the line between light petting and heavy petting? And how does that line move in proportion to how much time they, they've been dating and how old they are in the particular situation? I mean, there must be some sort of algorithm that you could show them that, that would explain this. And masturbation. Peter, please talk to the boys about masturbation. 
Recently, a friend sent me the following slideshow. That's, that's the earth, okay, the earth. And uh, this is the earth in relation. Now, can you turn those spotlights off so they can see that, I think? Uh, this is the earth in relation to the solar system, okay? So the earth is a little yellow dot down there at, at the bottom. And then this is the solar system in relation to the solar interstellar neighborhood, okay? The solar is a little dot in the middle. And then the solar interstellar neighborhood in relation to the Milky Way galaxy. And, and this is that, the Milky Way galaxy, in relation to the local galactic group. And the local galactic group in relation to the Virgo supercluster and the Virgo supercluster in relation to the local superclusters and the local superclusters in relation to the observable universe and the observable universe in relation to God. <laughs> is, I mean, I mean, is that what the word of God is, is, is saying to us. I mean, really, okay, now you can turn those lights back. I mean, is, is that it? Because some of you, you laugh, some you're not sure if, if you sh should laugh, right? I, I mean, you're wondering to yourself, should I be offended? Uh, do, do I feel offended? Well, well, no matter what, you feel something, right? Because now we're not talking about like knowledge in a, in a book somewhere. We're talking about something that you like feel in, in your gut. And it all raises this question, is that what the creator cares about? Well, no. Do you realize the word masturbate doesn't even appear in all of scripture? And I should know because I spent years searching for it. For any, I mean, I remember in high school wondering if it had not yet been invented or, or something, you know. And then I thought, no, that's probably not, not, not true. I mean, the Bible speaks about immoral lust, but not that word. And, and there's an obscure reference to onan and seed spilled on the ground, which has given rise to religious schism, open warfare, and the Monty Python song, every sperm is, is, is sacred. But, but that sin was very different than, than this. So is that what the creator cares about? No! And yes, maybe yes. Because I mean, seriously, sexuality is like a constant topic in the scripture, kind of like it may be also in, in your heart and in our society, a constant topic in scripture. It's often translated into obscurity, but concepts like seed and fruit, communion, even knowledge are extremely sexual concepts in the scripture. God's first commandment, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, in the Old Testament, the sign of the covenant was Circumcision, that was the sign of the covenant. I mean, I'm sure Abraham thought, gosh, I mean, couldn't we have thought of a better sign, Lord, like a, like a ring that you wear on your finger, you know, or maybe a certificate that could be signed by a pastor or the justice of the peace, or maybe we could wear matching clothes, you know, like in the J.C. Penney catalog. I mean, what about that for a sign? But God, you, 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 wanna, you wanna touch me there? I mean, you touch me there, and that's like touching my heart. 
could we talk about something else? This is making me uncomfortable. Well, anyway, the Bible never mentions the word masturbation, but God seems to be very concerned with your sexuality. So I want you to hear me really well now. I really and truly, truly do not know what Jesus is saying to you about that topic, but I'm convinced that he'd, he'd really like you to talk to him about any and all of your sexual issues. But we have such an incredibly hard time doing that, don't we? Isn't that kind of weird? I mean, it's, it's even ironic, especially in our society, because we live in such a promiscuous society, and yet it's also an extremely repressed society. Sex is everywhere, but it's, it's very difficult to talk about what any of it means. It, you know, in a Hebrew agrarian society, I bet it was like almost the exact opposite. I mean, every new, everybody, everybody knew what, what sex was. They uh, knew how it worked and, and even what it meant. I mean, every little kid would watch the farm animals, right? They knew where little goats and little sheep and little ducks came from. They knew how life was produced. They, they knew that when it came to people, though, the process was sacred, and so it belonged in the sanctuary of a covenant. It even constituted the covenant. So if you're thinking to yourself, Peter, Paul's talking about marriage, not sex. Well, you need to understand that in Scripture, the thing that constitutes marriage is, is not a ring on the finger or some document signed by a justice of, of the peace somewhere. And so we, we have trouble getting the concepts in Scripture in, in our society because I think we're promiscuous and repressed, which leads to a whole lot of shame and a whole lot of denial. And so gender, sex, and marriage are very difficult things to talk about, especially in church. And, and, and that's why we also, I think, get the idea that, well, uh, sex is, is, like, is, is bad. The feeling that sex is, is bad. Sex is a dirty, filthy, it's a dirty, filthy thing. And that's why you should save it for the person that you marry. <laughs> and never mention it in church. Sexuality does not belong in the sanctuary. We come here to celebrate the sacrament of communion in the sanctuary of the covenant of grace. Sex does not belong in the sanctuary of the covenant. Sex belongs outside the sanctuary of the covenant. Do we hear ourselves sometimes? You know, sometimes I think that we, the bride of Christ, have entirely lost sight of the story. You know, it's the plot of a story that gives meaning to every detail in a story. And if you don't know the plot, anyone can lie to you about the meaning of each and every detail. And so right now, some of you are feeling shame. And some of you are feeling fear or panic. Maybe some even feel licentiousness, and, and that's all because we've been listening to the liar and not the logos, who is the plot and our bridegroom. And so we can't even begin to address those questions at the start of the sermon until we remember the story. In Ephesians, Paul begins talking about gender, marriage, and sex, and then he reminds them of the story for this reason. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He, he's quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, 
Um, what the great theologian Andrew Tybert told me is the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. Paul's reminding them of the story. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know us. You see us. You created us and uh, you are creating us. And, and you know, Lord God, that when we talk about this topic, it, well, it, it, it pokes all kinds of buttons. I mean, there are some people that have been horribly abused surrounding this issue. Some people that have experienced great things in this issue. Some people that are so confused by this thing. Um, Lord God, we claim the blood of your covenant over this sanctuary that we would commune with you this morning and you, Holy Spirit, would remind us of the great story and who it is that we truly are. In Jesus' name, amen. In the second chapter of the book of Genesis, the creation of man is described, and it happens on the sixth day, and, and, and it must still be happening, for you and I are still being made in the image of God. In other words, we are unfinished. Genesis 2.15, the beginning of the section that Paul quotes, the Lord God took the man. Now, man in Hebrew is the word Adam. I think at some point there was an Adam, but, but Adam also means man, as in humanity. So don't get all hung up on the historical accuracy of the story. Historically, this, this is entirely accurate because it is at least the story of you. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Eden means pleasure or, or delight. Many Orthodox Jews believe that Eden is the site of the temple and Jerusalem. You know, they're all on this one mount. And in the Revelation, the new Jerusalem, well, it is Eden, Eden and, and it is the temple. Well, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the very spot that stood the tree of knowledge also stood the tree of life. Many ancient rabbis argued that they were the same tree. And if Jerusalem is in the same location as Eden, then in Eden stood another tree that we refer to as the cross. And according to the revelation, in the new Jerusalem stands a tree as well. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations and through it flows the river of life. And you know the life is in the blood. I think they're all one tree. The cross, the knowledge of good and evil, and the source of life. Well, anyway, in Genesis 2, God warns Adam about the tree of knowledge. In Scripture, I hope you know that there are two ways of knowing. Number one, Adam and Eve will know stuff through the tree and die. Number two, Adam and Eve will know each other and Eve will bear fruit that is life. Number one, you can know by seizing control. And number two, you can know by surrendering control and being known. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the Adam should be alone. 
Did you know this is the first thing that God declares not good? Loneliness. And, and if it's not good, Adam is definitely not finished in God's image. God is good and God is a trinity of, of loving persons. So if Adam is alone, he's certainly not finished in the image of God. In fact, in the Bible, the concept alone is, is, a, is, a, pretty, is, is a pretty good simile. I mean, it's a, it's a way of describing what we loosely call hell, alone. Adam is alone. Just think of that. Adam is alone in paradise. You ever been alone in paradise? Several years ago, I was in, this is like echoing or something. Did you hear that? So yeah, the bass needs thanks. Several years ago, I was on a mission trip to Brazil and I remember this one day, we went to the most gorgeous beach. I mean, the sand came right up next to the jungle and then down at the water's edge, couples were frolicking in the ocean waves. I remember we had just had some uh, tropical drink, you know, and I lay there in the, in the sand uh, under the light of the sun and I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is paradise. And I rolled over to my right and I saw my friend Andrew Trawick like a pasty fish in a swimsuit frying under the tropical sun. And I remember I looked over the other way and I stared at the big old middle-aged belly of the missionary we were working with, Ken Fleury. It was all hairy and ugh. And I remember I looked back up into the sky and I, I remembered that I hadn't seen my bride for two weeks and, and I thought to myself, you know, this isn't paradise. This is hell. You know, Susan and I just returned from our 30th wedding anniversary trip to Hawaii. And just about every day, we'd pack a picnic lunch, bottle of wine, and then head down to this beautiful beach that we had found. For me, that is the closest thing to paradise on earth. And yet, without Susan, that beach would basically be a sandbox. Sandboxes are okay, but, but not paradise. You know, if you would have taken me to that beach when I was like four or five years old, I would have liked it because I, I like sandboxes, but sandboxes are not paradise. Even if Susan was with me, I mean, we might have, might have played together, had a nice time together, but the age of four or five, we'd be in Paris by paradise, but couldn't experience paradise. We couldn't even conceive of paradise, and not because we had sinned, but because we were immature not finished. We did not yet have a capacity for paradise. Well, Adam is alone in paradise. He's alone. Or is he? Actually, he's in the very presence of God who is love. Adam is alone in the presence of love. I guess he can't conceive of love. I guess he can't feel love, trust love. That's called faith. He can't trust love. He can't receive love. And God is love. Paul wrote this. Listen closely. In God, we live and move and have our being. In God, we live and move and have our being. I mean, but be honest. Do you ever feel lonely? I do. 
So if scripture is, is right and I swim in God who is love, I must like have a thick fleshy skin surrounding my heart or, or something. So, so although I swim in love, I don't feel love as if I'm surrounded by heaven and yet trapped by hell. Remember what Jesus, the eschatos Adam, preached over and over and over and over again? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like right there. Muslim fundamentalists picture heaven as a harem full of beautiful virgins. Christian fundamentalists tend to picture heaven as mansions and all-you-can-eat buffets. I bet heaven is at least mansions and all-you-can-eat buffets and very attractive women, but maybe you see that's just the sandbox. And paradise itself is communion with God. God, who is absolutely free and relentless love, he is grace. Sometimes, I wonder if we Christians even want God. In other words, sometimes I wonder if we even want the good. Because God is the good. And hey, that kind of raises a fascinating question. How can Adam choose the good if he doesn't even know about the good. Hmm. And remember, there are two ways of knowing. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper. I will make a helper fit for him, a helper fit for him. Now, now it's very interesting to note, number one, that in Hebrew, the word helper, azer in Hebrew, that, that noun is a masculine noun, the helper. Number two, it's also interesting to note that as, at this point, Adam is not entirely masculine. In fact, Adam is a he-she. Because <laughs> where is she? She's in he, right? You see, you, women, you thought that this story wasn't about you up to this point, but, but it is. It, it is about you, for you're in Adam. Actually, according to Paul, we are all in Adam somehow. We're all a bride, and brides are very feminine, not, not masculine. Well, and number three, it's very interesting to note that the word helper in Scripture is almost always used for God. 24, 25 times in the Psalms, and each time we're reminded, God is our helper, God. And God said, it is not good that the Adam should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And, and, and now, God makes animals. Isn't that weird? He either makes animals or uh, he gets animals that he had made and brings them to Adam so that he would name them. We call that taxonomy or biology. It's, this is the birth of science. And, and it's like the whole time God is asking Adam, so, so Adam, is, is this your helper? A squirrel? Is this your helper, Adam? Every creature, it says every creature, like all creation is brought to, to the Adam. Uh, see, it's like all creation has been made just so that God can ask this question. Adam, is this your helper? Adam, who's your helper? Adam, who's your, who's your helper? Who's your helper? You know, we often make created things our helper. And Paul refers to those things 
as idols. Verse 18, God said, it is not good that the Adam should be alone. I will make him a helper, a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now this is truly fascinating, but um, a few years ago, I discovered that recent archeological uh, evidence suggests rather clearly that when the ancient rabbis would read this text in the synagogues, like around 300 AD or so, uh, a soundtrack would be playing in, in, in the background. And they, and they did that because they were convinced that when God brought the animals to Adam, this sound, he had this soundtrack playing in the background. And so, uh, guys, could you cue the soundtrack right now? This was playing as, 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 uh, as they read these verses, all right? Soundtrack. Got it? Okay, you can't hear it, but, but you're gonna, are you going to hear it in a minute? Okay, don't worry, because I'll tell you what it is if we don't get it. Yeah, there it is. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Do it, bees do it, even educated fleas do it, let's do it, let's fall in love. Okay, got, got the idea. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, the Adam, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, I, I need to just confess something. Actually, um, the ancient rabbis didn't play that soundtrack. And that's because the ancient rabbis didn't have a soundtrack. However, they did write Midrash. Uh, Midrash is ancient commentary written around 300 AD upon the Hebrew scriptures by the rabbis. And in their exposition of Genesis 2, Bereshit Rabbah, the animals are pictured as walking past Adam in pairs. And so they pick up these clues from the text and from the Hebrew that they're walking past Adam in pairs. And Adam comments, everything has its partner. And I have no partner. Meanwhile, God keeps asking, Adam, who's your partner? Adam, who's your helper, Adam? Look, Adam, they're each male and, and female. Each has a helper in their own likeness through whom, Adam, life is created. Life is created as the result of intimate, naked, vulnerable communion. Adam, who's your helper? In whose Adam, in whose likeness are you? Who longs to fill you, Adam? Who longs to create through you, Adam? Adam, mankind, humanity, who's your helper? Can you see me? Can you hear me? Would you know me? Would you surrender to me, Adam? Who's your helper? Verse 20, but Adam did not find a helper suitable for him. And so God begins the great lesson. 
He puts Adam to sleep and takes a rib. Actually, the Hebrew is the side. He takes the side of Adam and fashions that side into Eve. He brings the woman to the man, and the man declares, verse 23, this at last is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then the verse that Paul quotes, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so at last, Adam has found his helper. Or not. Next verse. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You know, she didn't really actually turn out to be that great of a helper, did she? So um, did Adam find his helper? How could Eve be his helper? She's part of the one that needed help in the first place, right? She was there in Adam. Adam even says, bone of my bones, flesh of my, this is my flesh. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Uh, that is, she is me and me is she. So the helper that Adam got was more of himself. And the helper that Eve got was more of herself. Eve is a lousy helper for Adam, and Adam turns out to be a lousy helper for Eve. Listen to Genesis 3, 6. Eve took the fruit from the tree and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. He was with her, and he didn't stop her. That's, that's like a really, really, really lousy helper. But now let me remind you. Paul has been teaching us all through Ephesians all this year and in all his letters that there is an old man and a new man, an old Adam and a new Adam. In Romans 5.14, he says this, Adam, that old Adam, Adam is, is a tupas in, in Greek, a, a type, a form of the one about to be, the one about to come. You see, the old Adam, like we've been saying, is like an empty place. Old Adam is like an empty place. He's like, he's like a womb. He's like a form or a mold into which a sculptor, an artist, would pour molten bronze, making a beautiful piece of art, and then would cut off the form and discard the form. Old Adam is the place. The new Adam is revealed. So old Adam took Eve's sin at the tree. She, she took at the tree and old Adam took, took with her because he was a bad helper, right? He had listened to God. He didn't help her. He didn't step in at the point. I suppose he didn't want to sacrifice. Old Adam took Eve's sin at the tree because he was a bad helper. But maybe there's another Adam that also takes Eve's sin at the tree because he will not leave her nor forsake her because he wants to sacrifice his very own life for her life, because he wants to show her that he is her helper. And maybe that old Adam creates a longing, a desire in the bride so that when she sees the new Adam and she hears him cry from the tree, it is finished. She drops at the base of the tree and she cries, my Lord and my God, my helper. 
Well, anyway, day six, back in the garden, okay? And, and outside the garden, God is still asking, who's your helper? But now he's not only using creation. He's not only using all of the animals. He's using their very bodies. He's even using their very own failures uh, to create a longing, to ask a question, to, to shape a capacity. He's saying, mankind, Adam, look at how you're made. Look, every urge, every desire, every longing. Look at how fullness fills emptiness and produces life. Look at the emptiness in your, in your own being. Look at the emptiness in yourself. It's, it's like a womb. Now that you know you've sinned, wouldn't you like to be known by mercy? Wouldn't you like to be filled with mercy? Adam, aren't you tired of being so alone? Are you ready to know and be known by your helper? I am your helper. I am the good, your helper. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God tells Israel, I am your helper. Through Isaiah, he cries out to the people, um, your maker is your husband. I'm your husband. I'm your, I'm your helper. But it's like they can't see. They can't hear. They can't know. It's as if there's a skin covering their ears and, and their heart. In the New Testament, we meet Jesus, Yeshua. You know what the name means, right? God is salvation. Here's another way of saying the same thing. I am help. Jesus is the word of God in human flesh. Jesus is the helper made fit for mankind. Jesus is the eschatos Adam. And, and, and we still didn't recognize him until we nailed him to a tree, maybe the tree, and took his life. That's original sin. We took his life, and yet he gave his life. And, and that, Paul says, is the eternal plan. There on the tree, he bore our sin and he entered all our sorrows. There on the tree, he delivered up his spirit, the spirit of the parakletos, the, the helper, and now he fills all our empty shame with mercy, all our darkness with light, all our lies with truth, our old man with eternal man. He longs to impregnate us, his bride, with himself, the very seed of the living God. Ephesians 5.31 Therefore, 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 a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. It's profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. <laughs> so why sexuality? I mean, that's a really great question. Biologists ask that question. Maybe you've read about it. Why, why this way? I mean, you could have made it so like a bud grew on your back, dropped off, and there's Junior, you know? I mean, why the mess? Why the pain? Why the, why the struggle? Why, why sexuality? Why gender? I mean, it could have all made us all just exactly the same, right? Why this male-female thing? Why, why gender? Why marriage? Why the covenant of, of marriage? And why does he allow failed marriages? Why the longing, the frustration, the pain? Why broken sexuality? And why, in the midst of all of this, these glimpses of, of eternity, of ecstasy? Well, you see, Paul says it all refers to Christ and the church, his bride. 
In all these things, creation and desecration, the good and the evil, God is still asking, who's your helper? Who's your savior? And he doesn't want you to answer with just some words, but your whole being. Who's your helper? 35 years ago, I was dating my bride, Susan. We were in high school. We hadn't been dating for very long, and I, I brought her to youth group, partly because I knew that I was only supposed to date non-Christians, and she was smoking hot, and so I needed her to get saved, you know. That group, she learned about Jesus and knew about Jesus, but she wasn't sure that she wanted to know Jesus or be known by Jesus, and then late one night in her room, she awoke to demons surrounding her bed, pressing her. She said it felt like they were pressing her down into the mattress and out of the wall through this horrid stench, this thing like darker than the night of the room came out of the wall, stood at the base of her bed, reached out its arms and said, you're mine. It was all that she could do to get out the name Jesus. She had learned about that at youth group. But, but when she said, Jesus, she heard this horrid scream and all this evil went like back into this little hole and disappeared. Immediately she rolled over, grabbed her Bible, opened her Bible, and her eyes fell on this verse, Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. It was when she read that verse, that night that she prayed this prayer. Jesus, you can come in. To the extent that I'm a good helper, I teach my bride about Jesus. To the extent that I'm a bad helper, I teach her to long for Jesus. This mystery is profound, says Paul. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Have you seen these ads for ChristianMingle.com? ChristianMingle.com, find God's match for you. God is God's match for you. I hate these ads. And, and, and trust me, it's not because I have anything against dating websites or Christian, whatever, you, dating websites. It, it's because this is just backwards. They're saying, use our knowledge of God to help you get married. When God is using marriage to help you know him. God is using your sexuality, your gender, your relationships. Now listen closely. He's using those that are good and he's using those that are bad. He's using the ones that work and he's using the ones that even fail. Maybe even especially the ones that fail. All to help you ask this question, well, who is my helper? Who is my helper? He wants you to ask the question and he's helping you to answer with all your being. The Lord is my helper. So as we begin our study of this section in Ephesians, where we talk about all this stuff, please let me be clear about, clear about, about four things. Num number one, we're all sexual beings. Whether you're 18 and feel like you just cannot contain yourself or you're 90 and just trying to remember, you know? 
Whether you're straight as an arrow or all your desires seem out of balance and out of whack, whether, whether you've never been on a date or whether you've been married for 30 years, whether you're married 30 years or you're divorced or, or struggling, we're all sexual beings. And number two, we're all frustrated sexual beings. Why? Well, because we're still waiting for our helper. See, human sexuality is the sign and not the substance. And so we're frustrated by design in order to nurture a longing for our helper. And number three, we're all frightened, frustrated sexual beings. I mean, this topic makes us uncomfortable. And it, it scares us. Why is that? Because we don't want to surrender control. Remember, there are two ways of knowing. We can seize control like you seize fruit on a tree, but everything you know in that way is dead or dies when you seize it. We can seize control or we can surrender control. Like a bride surrenders to her groom on her honeymoon night, like the church is to surrender to our Lord as, as we worship. To know love, you can only surrender to love because God is love. If you seize love, trying to know love that way, you really don't, don't know love. God is love. And, and, and see, our old man loves control. Our old man uh, loves control. Our flesh loves control. And in that way, it's like a, a thick skin over our ears and over our heart, keeping us from, from knowing God. Through, through the prophets, God says this, circumcise your ears. As if that's what God was getting at through all that stuff with Abraham. Circumcise your ears. Circumcise your hearts. And according to Paul, we are circumcised with Christ at his, at his cross. As if there on the tree, he freed us of our old man. He cut away our body of flesh, the skin covering our hearts. There on the cross, our hearts are exposed to God's heart. There we begin to commune in the sanctuary of the covenant. There we come to know God, even as we are known by God, so like a bride on her honeymoon night, yes, we're terrified. <laughs> because our bridegroom is not safe, but he's good. In fact, he's the good. He's the life. He's what you most desperately desires. He enters us and rises within us as faith, hope, and love. And that's just the seed that turns into a kingdom. And number three, we're all frightened, frustrated sexual beings. But number four, through it all, the Word of God is asking all a question. And you see, it's not what we expected. He's asking you, a question. Would you be my bride? Adam, mankind, who is your helper? From outside of space and time, he's asking you the question. And right here and right now, he's giving you the answer. He himself is the answer. And so on that night, he took bread and he broke it, saying, 
This is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, after supper, having given thanks, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the covenant, the new and eternal covenant. In my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins, drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. He's our helper. And right here, he was made fit for you and for me. Let's pray. Lord God, you, you know us. You see us when we don't see you. You know everything about us. You know all our fears, all our worries, all our anxieties. And so right now we confess to you that we need a helper. Lord, it's like all creation says to them. I mean, we're all dying. We look around and, and it's very clear, we need a helper. And Lord God, maybe more than in any other area of our psychology, of our emotions, when, when we start talking about this stuff, we realize, I need a helper. I need help. And so right now, just confess yourself to the Lord. Some of you have horrid experiences from the past. Confess them to him. He'll use them to nurture a longing and a desire within you. Some of you sorrow over things that you tasted and now are gone. Well, well give those to him because you see that they're only appetizers. They're only a taste of, of where you're headed, ultimate communion and the trinity of the living God. And in all of that, just say, God, I, I need a helper. And then say this in your heart. In fact, let's say it out, out loud, okay? Let's, let's say, you say it after me, the Lord God is my helper. Lord God is my helper. In Jesus' name, amen. you are beautiful and you're making us beautiful and we thank you for who you are Jesus in your name amen now before you go let me just say that this topic is so hard because there's so much partly because there's so much broken sexuality it all touches us in frightening places and I just want to encourage you to have hope. So when Paul says this refers to Christ and his church, really good things happen to Christ and his church. You are the bride of Christ. But now I, I want to point out something to you. If, if, you're feeling, if you're feeling shame or you're feeling afraid or you're feeling disappointed, when you go to the Gospel of Matthew, it's fascinating that, that Matthew lists a genealogy and he, he points out five women 
in Jesus' genealogy. The first is uh, Tamar. She basically um, committed incest by dressing up like a prostitute and, and, uh, and bedding her father-in-law, okay? Then the next one is Rahab. She was a Canaanite prostitute, um, and her name means dragon. The next one was Ruth, who was a foreigner who kind of seduced a, a guy. The next one was named Bathsheba, okay, whom David uh, uh, committed fornication, murdered her husband, all that stuff. And the next one is Mary. Now, now listen, Jesus is born in all those places. Isn't that amazing? He's born out of those wombs, and so everything that you have and everything that you are is that place where he longs to be born, that place he longs to fill, that place he longs to transform, and he will. So bride of Christ, you, you need to understand that you're also the mother of Christ. That's what he says, and you need to have hope because you're about to go on your honeymoon. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.